0: Bibles, looking specifically this morning at verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 as we jump into talking about the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. My grandpa on my dad's side, we, we called him Grandpa Weiler, I know that's really shocking, well, some people have these like Peepaw and Meemaw and all that. We, we never did. It was Grandpa Weiler, Grandpa M- Merrill, Gr- Grandma Weiler, Grandma Merrill, whatever. Anyways, my, my grandpa on my dad's side was a World War II veteran. He was a potato and dairy farmer. He was involved in the church that my other grandpa pastored. Many of you know where this is, just north of uh, Ashland in Savannah, Bethel Baptist Church. And uh, just an overall good guy. A lot of good memories that I have with my Grandpa Weiler. But he was particular about many things. Many things. He always ate lunch at 11 a.m., when I knew him, anyways. Always ate lunch at 11 a.m., usually a bowl of soup and something else. Then he watched the rest of Price is Right, and then he watched the local news at noon. He ate dinner at exactly 5 p.m., then watched the 6 o'clock news, followed by Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and whatever ball game was on. At some point during the ball game, he would usually look at one of us and say, You could play better than they're doing right now because nothing ever quite satisfied him with his sports teams. But he was a Cleveland fan, so obviously that's why. (laughs) He loved Bonanza. He loved Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Remember that show? For a while. He did not like Bill Clinton. Every time Bill Clinton came on the TV and said something, Grandpa usually followed what he said with his famous line, Ah, shut up. (laughs) He had very strong opinions about certain things. Very strong opinions. If you walked into the house with your hat on, he, he would immediately say, you take that hat off, boy. The one, though, that, that, that why I'm telling you all about my grandpa is the one that stands out today is this. If he saw you as a young man with belt loops on your pants and no belt on, that was not good. He would look at you and he'd say the same thing. Put your belt on, boy. You better put a belt on, boy or he might use that belt on you. <laughs> That's the instruction we see from Paul here today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Put your belt on, boy. You better buckle on your belt, and you better strap on your breastplate. Starting with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul implores us to get dressed, get ready for battle, because the spiritual battles, as we talked last week, the spiritual battles are real. And the enemies that you will face in life in these spiritual battles are dangerous. We saw that in chapter 6, verses 10. Today we focus on verse 14, but I want to go back and read for us verses 10 to 14 so we kind of see the run-up into uh, the spiritual armor again. So starting in verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Here in this short passage, just four verses, Paul says, stand, four times in four verses. He says, stand. He says, you better stand. You better withstand. We get the sense it's a little important, right? It's important for us to stand because of what he's just said about the enemy being evil about the need for us to defend ourselves, he said, you better stand. And when you stand, while you stand, you better be protected. You better have the armor on. And so he tells us here to put on the armor. He tells us to stand. And then he starts to tell us, verses 14 and following, how we do it. What is that armor that you are supposed to put on? In essence, he's saying, here's how. He says, the armor you better put on, verse 14, is the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, followed by the shoes of the gospel of peace. We'll look at that next week. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and don't forget verse 18, prayer. Here for us is the armor of God, and the armor of God is a gift of the grace of God, because God is a loving and giving God. You realize that God doesn't have to give us anything, but he chooses to give us everything we need? We deserve none of this armor, yet he gives it to us. Uh, thinking through 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this in verse 3, Peter does. He says his, talking about God, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given to us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. Then, two verses later, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says that we are to be diligent. We are to make every effort to utilize the gifts and the resources that God has given to us. So it's not just that God has given us these things and we say, man, thank you for these gifts. I'm going to enjoy them while I sit here. No, then he says, make every effort. Be diligent to utilize them. So God has given us this armor, and now Paul is telling us, strap it on. Be diligent. Make every effort to strap it on and leave it on. Like my grandpa would say, but put your belt on, boy. Put your belt on. Paul here uses, in, in this spiritual armor that we see, as a master teacher, Paul uses this terrific analogy of a soldier's armor. A soldier would go into armor or into battle with this physical armor on. And Paul takes that and he communicates to us a metaphor here of how that armor would also be used for us in our defense and also the weapons that we will need for our spiritual battle. Was Paul a soldier? He wasn't. You say, well, how did he know so much about a soldier's armor? Well, you remember where Paul wrote Ephesians? Ephesians was written while Paul was imprisoned probably strapped, probably chained to a Roman guard. So can you imagine Paul, he's writing Ephesians, and he looks over this guy and he says, well, that's a great idea. Man, I could, that, okay, belt, okay, breastplate, yeah, shield of faith, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, this is coming. So Paul uses what he sees right there, and he, he communicates to us this great, this great metaphor to portray to us readiness for battle. Right? Now we have to be careful here that we don't get lost in the metaphor. Right? It's not the belt and the breastplate that are important for us, but it's what? Truth and righteousness. Right? So it's not literally what the soldier is wearing, but rather our our armor, excuse me, is not a belt. Rather, it is truth. Our armor is not the breastplate. Rather, it is righteousness. And that's what we're going to key in on today in verse 14, putting on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Would you look here, verse 14, it says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. The belt of truth, girding our waist with truth. Let's first talk about what we know or the metaphor itself. What is the significance of a belt to a soldier? Why is this an important piece of armor for a soldier? He starts with this, so it must be important kind of as a priority piece, and I think it is. The belt for the soldier was a core piece of armor. In those days, the, your, your base layer of clothing would have been a flowing robe called a tunic, right? And it was, that was standard attire for the common person, standard attire for the soldier as well. However, with this long flowing robe, it sometimes would have been difficult to run or to work or to fight as a soldier. That, that robe kind of going all over the place gets in the way of things or trip you up. And so oftentimes they would, whether a person or a soldier, would take a belt and they put a belt around and gather up that tunic into that belt, kind of tightening it around them so it's not getting in their way of what they're doing or tripping them up or that type of thing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter uses that as analogy. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a really strange phrase, isn't it? Very unique. Gird up the loins of your mind. We've got several different analogies going on there. But what he's saying is gather all that in, right? To gird up means to gather in that flowing robe and, and kind of tighten it around your belt so you can move and you can operate freely. That's what Paul is telling us here. He says you should have your waist girded with truth. For the soldier, the belt was probably the first thing that was strapped on as part of his armor. Some say that it was probably about six inches wide. We're not talking about a little belt for decoration. We're talking about more of, you might think of like a policeman, right? They've got that solid belt on and that's where all their stuff is attached. All those important things are attached. And for the soldier, kind of the same idea. That belt was was the glue piece that held everything else in place. Your sword is attached to your belt. The protection for your legs hangs from your belt. Sometimes the breastplate would be strapped in to the belt. One commentary I read, they said this, the belt formed the common bond of the whole armor. The belt formed the common bond of the whole armor. So with that in mind, why do you think that Paul equates the belt to truth? He calls it the belt, have your waist girded, have on the belt of truth. The belt being the common bond of the whole armor. Here's why. I think we could accurately say that the truth, like a belt for a soldier, holds everything in place. Did you say that's accurate? The truth for us holds everything in place. Like the belt is the common bond of the armor, so the truth is the common bond of the Christian faith. Everything connects back to the truth it has to the truth of god in christ is our bedrock foundation we cannot change it we cannot deviate from it because truth by its very nature is unchanging right it's not adjusted based on the culture The whims of mankind. Truth does not blow in the wind like a leaf. Truth stands firm like a rock. And it is our bedrock foundation. All truth is true because all truth is God's truth. You realize that anything that is true in the world is true because God makes it true? True. All truth, whether it's mathematical truth or scientific truth or whatever it is, all truth is God's truth. So God is the truth. God is truth. He's the whole truth. He's nothing but the truth. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true and every man a liar. We pale in comparison to God being true. And whatever is true in the universe is true as it reflects the nature of God. If it does not reflect the nature of God, it is not true. So anything that is true is true because it in some way reflects the nature of God. Not only is God the truth, but Jesus is the truth. In fact, he said that as plain as day. John fourteen six. he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. We've seen this in Ephesians as well. If you look back to chapter 4, verse 21, he says, and if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That's Ephesians 4.21. The truth is in Jesus. John one verse fourteen says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Three verses later, John 1.17 says that grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus is the truth. If you think to John 18, right at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus is standing before Pilate, being accused of things that he did not do. And Jesus says to Pilate there in John 18, he says this. He says, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asks Jesus that famous question. You know what it is? He says, what is truth? Here's the thing, though. If you go back and read that passage in John 18, and it's one of your uh, growth group questions, so hopefully you have the opportunity to look through that. If you go back and read that question in John 18, 38, it says that Pilate asks Jesus what is truth, and then he walks away. I think we've always seen that as Pilate saying, hmm, what is truth? I don't think that's the way he asked that question. I don't think he was inquiring what the truth is. I think he was mocking the truth. He asks what is truth and then he walks off. He does not ask what is truth. I think he asks it this way. What is truth? Make sense? I mean, Jesus is standing in front of him. The truth is standing in front of him. And Pilate goes, what is truth? And he walks off. He walks away from the person that literally is the truth. You know, I wonder, is that how we respond to the truth of Jesus Christ? How long have you, how long have you walked away from the truth of Christ? You've heard it over and over and over, and you're almost immune to it by now. But you don't actually believe it. You don't actually believe the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of Christ may be staring you in the face. Will you say, what is truth? Who is Jesus? How can I be saved from my sins? Or will you say like Pilate, what is truth? What is truth? You realize your response to Christ will have eternal consequences. Absolute eternal consequences. How you respond to the truth. See, because Jesus is the truth. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only forgiveness of our sin. He is the one who is to be our only Lord. Now, you can say, well, I don't agree with all that. I don't care because that doesn't change the truth. What is true doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. It's still true. So Jesus is the truth. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only forgiveness of our sins. Any other way that we try to go or any other thing that we try to do, it does not work according to what? The truth. You must come to Christ. The gospel is also the truth. What is the gospel? The Bible clearly tells us that it's that Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day, and that he is one day coming back for us. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. It says here, Ephesians 1 verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So Ephesians 1 13 calls the gospel the word of truth. He says, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, you know what you heard? You heard the word of truth. The gospel is the truth. And I can say this, the gospel is the truth whether you believe it or not. Scripture is the truth. Scripture is the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is. Is truth. You realize God has never said one thing that's not true. The promises that He makes, true. The things that He says will come to pass, true. Psalm 19, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read it. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11, tells us a little bit about the truth of the Word. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. When you buckle on the belt of truth, and as a believer, you must, when you buckle on the belt of truth, you are buckling into the fact that God is the truth, that Jesus is the truth, that the gospel is the truth, that scripture is the truth. We must know that. There is nothing else to turn to. We must know the truth. Jesus said in John 8, 32, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There is freedom in the truth. You know, when Jesus said that, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. He he's speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not free. Actually, they were in bondage. They were in bondage to false doctrine. They were in bondage to false teaching. And Jesus tells them, you will know the truth. And what is he meaning by that? Well, go out and search for it. Go find it. No, he's saying, it's right here. The truth is right here. You know this truth. You know the truth. It will make you free. Free from false doctrine. Free from false teachers. You realize when you know the truth, you can see the lies for what they are, but if you don't know the truth, you don't know a lie is a lie, because you don't know what is actually true. When you know the word, you know what is not the word. So when somebody comes along and says, well, I think this, or I I have this, or "I," you say, well, I know the word, and I, I know that that doesn't line up with the truth. But if you don't know the word, you won't know what is not the word. See, this here the, about knowing the truth, that's the truth of doctrine. It's the truth of doctrine. We must, as believers, have truthful convictions. We must be convinced that this is the truth because the truth is not up for debate. Realize that? The truth is not up for debate. Our level of understanding the truth does not determine if it is true. Right? How many times have we thought, well, I don't think that's right? I don't care doesn't change the truth. Right? Or I don't understand that. Well, listen, your understanding of it is not the barometer of the truth. You don't get to say that's not true because I don't understand it. The the truth will never stoop to your level of understanding. The truth goes beyond our level of understanding. That's why we have to be in the word so that we do understand here's the reason. We don't believe in a truth. We don't. We do not believe in a truth. We believe in the truth, the definite article. There are not a bunch of truths running around. There is the truth. It's the truth of God in Christ through Scripture. All that we see in Scripture about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the world, about ourselves— we have to take that truth and assimilate it into our minds, assimilate it into our hearts as unchangeable truth. We're not going anywhere. We're not leaving that. That's the truth. You say, How do I do that? How do I, okay, I understand what the belt of truth is, I understand that it's important. How do I get the buckle on me? All right, how do I get that together? When we were flying here recently uh, in December, we flew down to South Carolina for a wedding and you get on the airplane and those belts, those buckles are sometimes a little different than the normal one the boys are used to. And it's like, daddy, help me, I can't get this. It says I'm supposed to have it on, but I can't get it. That's the question we're asking. Okay, I understand the belt's important. I understand I need to have it on. How do I get it on? What do I do to put that buckle on? William Gurnall, an old Puritan, he says this, if we do not desire to know the truth, we have already rejected it. It is not hard to cheat a person out of truth if he does not know what he has. You must desire the truth. And I would say this, if we have no desire for the truth, we have no desire for God. If we have no desire for the truth, we do not have any desire for God. And you will not know the truth until you know the word. You must be in the word you must be in the word. That's the only way we'll know the truth. If you have no attachment or love or desire for this word, you deal with that consequence. You say, how can I crank up my desire for the word? How can I crank up my desire for the word of Jesus Christ? Think about it. Think practically, personally. What needs changed in my schedule to prioritize the intake of the word? Am I that busy that I can't get the word? I can't get in front of the word? If you're that busy, guess what? You are too busy. What needs to change practically so that I can increase the intake of the word? Think about coming to church. What needs to change in my life, in who I am, so that listening to the word preached is a priority instead of something we fall asleep to or we just try to get through? What needs to change in my mind about the truth of the word of God that it becomes a priority and I can't wait for the word to be taught and I listen to it in Sunday school and I hear it preached in church and that's what I need, that's what I have to have? What needs to change in order for that to be the case? Thinking personally here, let me give you a pro tip. If you want to suddenly remember things that you have forgotten, start reading your Bible. Say, well, I got a lot of things to do today. I can't remember what they are. Start reading your Bible. You'll remember every single one of them. Why? Why? Because say, as soon as you pick up your Bible, Satan will bring you every other thing that you need to do. I'm too busy here. Or start praying. That's the other one. Start praying. And all of a sudden, you'll go from praying about one thing and your mind will say, oh, yeah, I've got that appointment today. And oh, yeah, I've got to do that. And I've got to talk to my grandkids. I've got to do it. It works every time. If you want to remember everything you've forgotten, start reading your Bible. Why? Because Satan wants, you to, wants to separate you from the word. He wants to remind you of everything else that you think is important all of a sudden that really isn't nearly as important as the word. Why? Because the truth of the word is Satan's enemy. And Satan's first method of attack is to separate you from the word of God, the truth. His first method of attack is to get you separated from the word of God. Guess what? Then he can do anything he wants to because you have no bearing. You have no rock to stand on. You know, he did that in the Garden of Eden. I'm not making that up. That's his first method of attack. It's exactly what he did with Eve. Has God really said? (laughs) Did he really say that? Person reading your Bible? (laughs) There's this over here that's much more important because, you know, has God really said that? You know, it worked with Eve. Sadly, I think it works with most of us too. People and churches and whole denominations have crumbled Why? Because they have unstrapped the belt of truth. They have unbuckled the belt of truth. And now they are completely open to anything that comes their way. They buy it all. Why? Because they don't have the truth. They're not strapped in to the truth. You hear the world tell us, what a great phrase, right? Live your truth like you can make it up. Oh, well, you just live your truth. I'll live my truth. You know, if you feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, that's your truth. The problem is now we're told that we're not only supposed to say live your truth, but I'm supposed to accept your truth and support you in your truth. So I'm supposed to tell you, even though that I know it's a lie, that your truth is actually true and support you in it. That's that's baloney. You get to live your truth. All truth is God's truth. And you won't know the truth. You'll fall into that type of thinking if you yourself don't know the truth. What's dangerous is that they replace the truth with their own truth. Because any abdication from the truth usually leads to a new truth that isn't really true. Somebody wisely once said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Why? Because we believe in the faith that has been handed down for generations. We earnestly contend for that faith. And this is really, really dangerous in the church, right? Because when we take the truth and we, and we fall away from it just a little bit, we end up in error. You ever heard somebody say, God is love? You ever heard somebody say that? God is love? Is that true? Absolutely that's true. It's in the word. The word says God is love. You ever heard someone say, God is love. He is so much love that he wouldn't send anyone to hell because that would be unloving. Therefore, hell isn't real. Oh, well, what just happened? We just took a truth, the truth that God is love, we mixed in a little bit of untruth, and now we've concocted a lie that sounds a lot like the truth, but is about the furthest thing from the truth. Be careful. Satan will hide a dose of poison in an ocean of medicine. Satan will hide a dose of poison in an ocean of medicine. You say, where does that start? Where does that decline happen? Where does that that reaching for the buckle of truth and and unbuckle, where does that start? It starts with a separation from the truth of the word of God. As soon as we try to go some other direction, try to deviate in some way from the truth of the word of God, we, t- we unbuckle that belt and we say, you know what, I've got my own truth. And we discard the belt of truth. Now, not only do we need to know the truth, but we also need to live in the truth. Meaning we live out the truth. Knowing the truth is the truth of doctrine. Living out the truth is the truth of devotion. Devotion. We need the truth of our character, the truth of our conduct. We must live in sincerity, not in hypocrisy, where we say we know the truth, but we actually don't live it out. We say all these flashy things about God, but we don't actually assimilate those into our lives. See, strapping on the belt is not just a head knowledge of knowing the truth, but it must sink into our heart so that we live out the truth. We live out what God has put into us. 2 John 4 And 3 John 4, John says about the same thing. He says, I have no greater joy than to see that my people are walking in the truth. Remember how Paul's told us in Ephesians 4 and 5 all about this walk in love and walk in the Spirit and walk in light and walk in wisdom? That's what we're talking about, that walk, that daily life, that living out of the truth. Ephesians 4.15 said that we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25 says, put away lying, put away the wrong type of speech and speak the truth to one another. So not only do we have to know the truth, we must live the truth out because if we don't live it out, you will struggle to prove to me that you actually know the truth. Does that make sense? If you don't actually live it out, you cannot prove that you actually know it. So we must then live it out. And this is where it's really neat because living out the truth dovetails perfectly into our next piece of armor. Because living out the truth is living righteously. Why? Because truth and righteousness are always connected. Truth is righteousness and righteousness is truth. There is an inseparable connection between truth and righteousness. We read the verse already, Psalm 19, verse 9. He said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, excuse me, goodness, righteousness, and truth. There's this inseparable connection between the truth and righteousness. So let's look here in the second part of verse 14. He says, you better put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is a breastplate and why was it significant for a soldier? Well, as I told you already, the soldier's base layer would be his tunic, but a thin piece of fabric like that, not much protection. I think I'm going to want to go into battle with a little bit more on than that, right? Right? So originally, they actually took, uh, uh, some soldiers would take their tunic and they would attach pieces of animal horn to their tunic, sew them on there, attach them in some way as some level of, of harder protection. Well, later on, metal scales were attached to a leather vest. Got a little better. Eventually, the breastplate was a hard metal plate on the front and on the back that was attached with leather straps. What was the purpose? To protect the heart and the vital organs. If that's the case, I'm not going into battle without that on. Some of the Roman spearmen would, would uh, eventually they wore chain mail. You've seen that, the little pieces of chain attached together, better, a better range of motion. Same idea. I tell you, the breastplate was absolutely essential. A soldier did not go into battle without it. It protected him from, from basically the neck down to the thighs, down to the waist. Say, so why does Paul equate the breastplate with righteousness. What's the connection there? Because it is righteousness that protects our heart, protects our mind, protects our desires, protects our will. And much like truth, God is righteous, and righteousness is of God. Whatever is righteous in the universe is righteous as it reflects the nature of God. If it does not, it is not righteous. Jesus is righteousness. In fact, he is perfect righteousness, just like God, because he is God. And then here's the incredible thing. You have God as righteous, holy, perfectly holy, separate from sin. Jesus as righteous, the Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who came down to us, so that then we, through Christ, can be made righteous. Well, that's the miracle of salvation right there. I don't know about you, but not the most righteous person in the world. But we can be made, right. yeah, we can. We can be made righteous through Christ because one, we are not righteous on our own. Romans 3 verses 10 to 12 says that we have absolutely no righteousness, no goodness to speak of. There is none righteous, no, not one. There are none that do good. All have gone their own way. Isaiah 64.6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, because that's what we like to do. No, 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 I am righteous. See this good thing I did over here? See this good thing I did over here? See this good thought I had? No, he says all your righteousnesses, all the things you think are righteous, they're like filthy rags. And probably the biggest enemy to Christ's righteousness in us is our own self-righteousness, our own righteousness. Righteousness. Because somebody who thinks they are righteous on their own has no need for the righteousness of Christ. I don't need him. I have it myself. That's wrong. That's not the truth. The miracle of salvation is that God has given us the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's called imputed righteousness, where where Christ's righteousness is given to us by grace through faith, Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin—that's Christ—to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You realize that that righteousness in Christ is absolutely essential. It is not only imputed righteousness; it is essential righteousness. We will not be saved if not for the righteousness of Christ on us. It's also one time righteousness. In that at the moment of salvation, God has granted to us the righteousness of Christ with long-lasting effect. See, see, at faith in Christ, God justifies us. He declares us righteous in Christ. That's done. Salvation is God's declaration that we have the righteousness of Christ on us. Therefore, it is positional righteousness that we are placed in a position of righteousness before God. Why? Because of Christ. Our standing before God is like Christ's standing before God. Anybody deserve that? Not a bit. You know, we need to be reminded of that. Reminded that you have the righteousness of Christ in you by faith in Christ. Why? Because Satan will come along and say, no, you don't. Look at that. You look what you did. Look what you have in your past. Look what you did over here to that person. You don't have the righteousness of God in Christ. You don't have that. Why? Satan is a liar. He is a slanderer. He will come at you with those lies and you say you don't have that and try to get you to doubt the fact that you have the righteousness of Christ and that it is sufficient for you. And you have to go back to Satan and say no. Through faith in Christ, according to the truth of God's word, I have the righteousness of Christ. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. However, I said all that, the positional righteousness that we have in Christ is probably not what he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And here's why. He's not going to command us to put on the breastplate of righteousness in that be positional righteousness because we don't put that on. God put that on us. So we don't you know, put on every day the righteousness that we have in Christ, the positional righteousness that we have. That's something that God has put on to us. So the breastplate of righteousness comes from that positional righteousness, but it's not that righteousness. What Paul is commanding us here to put on is the practical righteousness, the day-to-day righteousness of holy living. That righteousness of daily living is motivated by our standing before it. Because we have the righteousness of Christ and he is the Lord of our lives, therefore we want to live practically righteous for him. We want to live day by day in holy living. And guess what? That righteousness is also essential. Because if you don't have the day-to-day righteousness of practical holy living, it's very hard to prove that you actually have the righteousness of Christ on you just like we talked about living out the truth and knowing the truth. If you don't have the day-to-day righteousness of holy living, it's very hard to prove that you actually have the righteousness of Christ on you. And without the practical righteousness of day-to-day holy living, Satan will attack you and he will wound you and he will penetrate you deeply and will harm you. If we leave the breastplate of righteousness in the closet, we give way to the enemy of righteousness. What's the enemy of righteousness, unrighteousness? unrighteousness. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. There's that imagery again. You better have the breastplate of righteousness on because the fleshly lusts are warring against your soul, hurling the spears and hurling the darts your way. Because you have been made right, you need to do right. And doing right is what keeps us from doing wrong. I think we often focus in the Christian life too much on not sinning. Oh, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. Let's change our mindset. That's true. But instead of focusing on not sinning, let's focus on doing right. Does that make sense? You know, don't think of a pink elephant. Well, what can't you do? Anything but think of a pink elephant, right? Well, no, no, no. Don't focus on that. Let's focus on doing what is right. Because as we're doing what is right, it's not doing what is unrighteous. Micah 6.8, the prophet says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Living righteously is protection for your heart. It's protection for your mind, for your desires and your will. say, so what does that look like? I think he's already showed us Ephesians 4 and 5 is the practical righteousness of day-to-day holy living. You read through chapter four about unity with your brothers and sisters, about the equipping of the saints and speaking the truth in love and and, uh, being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, putting away bitterness and wrath and anger. Verse 29, no corrupt word proceeding out of your mouth. Don't steal, put away lying, put on the new man. Walk in love, walk in light, expose the works of darkness. Walk in wisdom, doing what the will of the Lord is. Submit yourself to the spirit. Husbands, uh, love your wives. Wives, submit... It's all right there. That's the breastplate of righteousness. And so he's already told us what it is. And now he says, put it on, strap it on. Don't take it off. Protect yourself from the attacks of Satan. By the grace of God, we can put on the righteousness of daily, holy living. There's no room for unrighteousness where righteousness dwells. There's no room for unrighteousness where righteousness dwells. Here in this passage, we're gonna see this. We've seen it today, and we're gonna see it in the next uh, pieces of armor as well. With each piece of armor, there is both a command and a promise. The command is what? Put it on. God's given it to you. Strap it on. Put your belt on, boy. Put it on. Strap it on. Don't take it off. By the strength of the Lord, put it on and stand firm. That's his command. The promise is that for those who wear the armor, they will stand strong. Having done all to... Stand. You stand because you have it on in the strength of the Lord. When we fail, the problem is not the armor. The problem is that the armor is in the closet. That's the problem. So in describing this metaphor here of the armor, both what we cover today and what we will, Paul actually draws from the Old Testament. This is really intriguing. I I, I guess I never really saw this as much until I was studying for this message. But Paul draws from the Old Testament imagery of the Messiah, who was to come at that point in the Old Testament, who also, it says, would be dressed in armor and would withstand the devil's attacks. This is incredible. This isn't some new concept that Paul's coming up with. He's actually referring back to the Old Testament. Go in your Bibles, and and we'll, we'll kind of close with this, Isaiah chapter 11. Earlier, we read Isaiah 59, 17, where it said he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Talking about Christ, the Messiah, the one who at that time was to come, who now has come. Look here at Isaiah chapter 11, verses one to five. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That would be meaning a son of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We understand this as a messianic prophecy about Christ coming. Verse three, his delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. What? You're telling me that Christ came dressed in the spiritual armor. Yeah. Christ wore the spiritual armor. That word for faithfulness in verse 5, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, that word for faithfulness is translated aletheia, truth. It's translated truth. What do we see in verse 5? Righteousness and truth. Jesus comes armored in truth and righteousness. So the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 is the armor that Jesus wore. Isn't that incredible? You say, did it work for Jesus? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Matthew chapter four, Satan attacks Jesus, right? Three times he tempts him. He tries to get him to presume upon God. He tries to get him to bow to Satan, tries to get him to give up his righteousness. And wearing the armor of truth and righteousness, every single time Jesus repelled the attack of Satan by doing what? Standing on the truth of the word of God. He said, it is written. The word of God says. See, by us wearing the armor, Christ is not asking us to do what he himself has not already done. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 4 where it says in Christ, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So wearing the armor is not this, you know, offbeat type of thing out here. No, wearing the armor by wearing the armor we follow Christ. We live as Christ lived. So I encourage you as my grandpa would say, put your belt on. Put your belt on, strap on the breastplate. Why? You're going to need it. Let's pray.